Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. My name is Abbas Elzane, and I am Professor of Environmental Engineering at the School of Civil Engineering at the University of Sydney, and I'll be chairing the event uh, tonight. Um, now, I'd like to start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the site on which we gather today, the um, Kadigal people of the Eora Nation, um, 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 who have never ceded sovereignty over the land. Uh, I pay res- I'd like to pay respect to their elders, past and present, and I invite us to remember that the 2017 Uluru Statement from the Heart uh, by an assembly of uh, more than 250 um, uh, Aboriginal and Strait Island um, uh, 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 leaders have called for an Indigenous voice in Parliament uh, that the Australian government um, has refused. Um, now, Indigenous dispossession uh, by um, European colonialism is an interesting opening for uh, an event on um, uh, environmental disasters. It's at the very least an apt reminder that while disasters might occur um, over um, days or months or years, their effect can persist um, uh, for centuries. Um, Now, uh, the timing is is incredible. In the last week or so, uh, we've had fires all around us. We've had air pollution episodes in New Delhi and Sydney. Uh, We've had severe flooding in Europe, not to mention um, uh, the silent, the many silent uh, uh, disasters that are less dramatic but no less serious. It's also a week when our uh, Deputy Prime Minister thought it fit uh, to downplay climate change, unfortunately, which is quite amazing. Now, one thing you learn quickly when you work on any aspect of disasters is that there's no such a thing as a natural disaster. Even natural hazards, uh, such as earthquakes, over which humans have very little control, become disasters um, when they unfold over social, economic, and institutional landscapes, um, which um, um, have with, with unequal distributions of risk and resources of power and powerlessness. Now, um, one of the interesting things about disasters is that they uh, give us an image of ourselves in extremists. You know, they ask us questions about um, destitution, about compassion, solidarity, about our ability to recover, um, uh, and so on. But the other um, uh, interesting aspect of the thing about disasters is that there are also moments of heightened political possibilities. Um, 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 what may be politically feasible or unfeasible uh, one day can change, can change in the blink of an eye. Think of the 2004 Boxing Day uh, tsunami, uh, which has wreaked havoc uh, in Aceh, uh, but also ended its 25-year, civil, uh, 25-year war. Now, um, why does it matter who governs, inter, um, uh, uh, who governs uh, environmental disasters? Um, how do we deal? Uh, there, are, there are answers to the question that are to do, there are small questions or practical questions to do how we deal with disasters, but there are also bigger questions. How do we deal with disasters when um, they, have bec- they are becoming increasingly regular features of our lives? 
payback, more or less, for three centuries of industrial modernity and at least 75 years of unfettered capitalism. How do we deal with disasters when the uh, welfare um, uh, regulatory uh, and regulatory uh, function of the state has been under concerted attack for the last uh, 30 years. You can ask even more cynically, how do we deal with disasters when uh, a disaster lives in the White House tweeting all day? Now, um, all these questions, we've got a panel, great panel today who is going to address those questions and more. And um, uh, Linda Hancock is a professor uh, of social science at the Alfred Deakin Institute for uh, uh, citizenship and globalization um, at Deakin University. Um, her work is on energy systems, uh, transnational uh, supply chains in energy, and uh, disaster resilience of energy systems, amongst other things. She has been um, a chief investigator on uh, several uh, Australian Research Council uh, funded uh, project and has done research in uh, Australia, Canada, the UK, Brazil, and India. Uh, she has held ministerial appointments, including as uh, a law reform uh, commissioner. And my favorite, um, she is currently a director on the board of Hepburn Wind, um, the only fully Australian-owned um, uh, community wind farm. Um, Dr. Francisco Molina is a postdoctoral researcher at the Research Center for Integrated Disasters Risk Management in Chile and has done a lot of work with indigenous communities in Chile uh, around disasters to do with water. Uh, he was particularly interested about the way indigenous knowledge um, uh, interacts with existing institutional uh, disaster uh, uh, management uh, uh, structures in, in Chile. Uh, given the recent event in Chile, unfortunately, uh, Francisco can't be with us tonight. He, he had to cancel his trip and we will hear a voice recording from him um, instead. And last but certainly not least, Susan Park is Professor of Global Governance at the University of Sydney and Research Affiliate um, of the Sydney Environment Institute. Um, her research is on uh, accountability mechanisms in uh, global environmental governance. She's doing interesting research looking at um, uh, uh, the extent to which um, if you've been damaged, if you're a local community that has been damaged by um, a, a project funded by multilateral organizations such as the, uh, the World Bank, um, to what extent you are able to go and seek uh, compensation. Um, uh, very interesting research uh, there. She is coordinator of the Task Force on Accountability, which is part of the Earth System Governance Network, and she has consulted for the Asian Development Bank. So we will first hear from each speaker. So let's get into it. Linda, please. Um, tonight, I want to say a few words about mining and disasters. Um, I want to acknowledge that there are petrochemical disasters like Exxon Valdez and that there are mining site disasters in a way where you get lack of reclamation and uh, environmental indigenous um, impacts. But tonight I want to talk more about the dominance of high carbon mining industries. Um, the latest figures from the International Energy Agency show that emissions from coal power have in fact gone up almost 3% just in the last year, and they account for over one third of total global emissions pollution. Now, why I'm mentioning that is that the link between disasters and climate warming and 
uh, uh, clear and they're acknowledged by the IPCC, the international body that's about to meet in Madrid to mainly discuss carbon. Carbon is a problem. It's not the only one, but if we did something about carbon, we would go a long way to reducing our vulnerability to these extreme weather events. Um, and so for the Paris goals to be realised, emissions from coal would need to fall from next year to zero in 2040. Now, we're not nearly there and we are a very carbon-dependent country ourselves. So the theme of this evening's um, Q&A and presentations is a call to action. But what's the problem with action here? We have climate-denying politicians who hide behind Australia's low um, total emissions, which are under 2%, but in fact we've got the highest per capita emissions globally. But also this is only months after reluctantly admitting the anthropogenic human-caused effects of climate change. So they hide behind the rhetoric of coal as a stabiliser for reliable electricity and energy and frame gas as a lower emission transitional fuel. But they're all fossil fuels. I just want to share with you this slide. Uh -oh. There we are. This is based on research by the Australia Institute that came out very recently. Um, it shows that the third highest um, fossil fuel exporter is Australia. We're just behind Russia and Saudi Arabia. Now, this might surprise some people. So not only are we the third largest there, but um, we, are, we are responsible for 20% of OECD fossil fuel exports. So we are a huge emitter in terms of displaced emissions added to our per capita emissions. And this is something that is hidden under claims to the superiority of profit for the country via GDP, gross domestic product. And in fact, um, we need to question this um, because we are a direct contributor to global fossil fuel emissions and we need to be concerned about this. So both Australia and the US have pro-coal climate-denying governments and have withdrawn from the Paris Agreement undertakings um, to contribute to the Global um, Green Fund. Now, this fund should have $1 trillion worth of money in it, but it only has 10, approximately $10 billion US dollars. That's meant to help the adaptive climate change transitions to cleaner energy, for example, for 147 vulnerable countries. So obviously there are global commitments that not only are we shirking at, but others are. Of course, you've got a lot of positives going on with this meeting taking place and with annual meetings and so on. But um, we also need to pay attention to the climate justice arguments. Who are the most vulnerable in terms of the impacts of this 
decarbonised world that rapidly needs to decarbonise. So it can't be left to politicians captured by vested interests in governance systems like Australia that don't even have transparency and real-time reportage of corporate donations to political parties and where we also lack a national anti-corruption agency. And so we don't have and really need this sort of integrity commission um, to give us protection for whistleblowers and also to give powers to subpoena politicians and senior public servants and corporate bosses protected under confidentiality and crooked biased evidentiary rules. So what global sanctions can we have as part of a call to action? And let's do some blue sky thinking. What about a call for an international court of justice on carbon emissions and climate justice? We often talk about the global north and the global south. It's not a bad um, categorisation. Of course, though, you've got vulnerable groups within Australia, the US, Europe, as well as in developing economies. But we need to have some sort of international forum to bring quicker change. At the moment, we've got so what are the instruments we have? And here's just um, an idea. Swedish teenager um, Greta Thorberg and 15 other children, um, they have filed in New York at the UN Climate Summit only the other week um, saying we're on a path to three to four degrees global warming and they've um, called for a invoking the rights of the child, they've based their human rights complaint against five countries. So time is short and we need to act now. There are some other positive lights in this space as well. Some of the corporate interests picking, are picking up the tab on glo global disaster impacts. Over 10 years ago, I ran a round table in Brussels and it was attended by disaster um, impact specialists and the International Federation of Red Cross. But it was also attended not just by the EU Climate Change Committee chair, but Swiss Re. Insurance companies, they're picking up the tab. And global underwriters like Lloyd's, um, they are also starting to refuse to give insurance. So, Perhaps it, there's a possibility there that some sort of international coercive environment court could um, say, well, if you're emitting over a certain percentage, say, let's say for Australia, why don't we have just one third fossil fuels, not two thirds, um, in our electricity mix, for example. Um, also, some of these initiatives are being undertaken by banks, like the major bank in the EU, is the European Investment Bank, has just announced new limits on energy-based project lending and it said you have to demonstrate it's 250 grams or less um, CO2 emissions per kilowatt hour. Of course, the activist groups who are also very important players, the NGOs, um, Client Earth recommended a level of 100 grams per um, kilowatt hour. So we're starting to get much better at measuring this 
and we're starting to try to get to some standards that might be instituted globally for a lot fairer distribution, but a lot quicker. Um, and so I'll just end up there. My name is Francisco Molina. I am Chilean. First of all, I would like to excuse myself for not being there. I'm a researcher at CIGIDEN. CIGIDEN is a multidisciplinary and multi-university research center financed by FONDAP from CONICIT, the Chilean state, that looks for the excellence in knowledge generation to help the resilience of the country facing its natural hazards and avoiding them to turn into disasters. Who should govern environmental disasters and how? To try to answer this question, we need to talk about neoliberalism. Neoliberalism was born in Chile and will die in Chile. The main disaster in our country and in our region is neoliberalism. It has become a way of being, a way of knowing, and a way of acting that is totally against people, especially poor people, and against nature. So if we think about disasters, we cannot think of this huge umbrella that covers us and does not allow us to see properly. As you may know, disasters is a mixture of exposure, vulnerability, and hazards. In Chile, we have several hazards, tsunamis, earthquakes, bushfires, volcano eruptions. Hazards are there and we know them quite well. What about exposure? Several constructions and productive activities are in risk areas. Most of the people that work and live in those areas are vulnerable, people that have needs due to an injustice model which puts infrastructure works at the same level as human lives, as we have seen in the last days in Chile. So who should govern disasters in a neoliberal scenario? We need a multi-actor and multi-scale committee where local groups, local leaders, representatives should have a key position, as we are demanding in the current Chilean constitution debate. Nobody knows better than them how is their territory and how nature has been changing due to climate change and neoliberal policies. Nobody knows better than them how cruel is water scarcity, desertification, pollution. We cannot forget that for them these are frequent and dramatically normal phenomenon. We can see three initiatives that are relevant to explain the situation in Chile. The first one, the Council of Atacamenian People in the north of Chile. It's an organization composed by 18 Atacamenian communities that are together since 1994. They are located in an indigenous area in the Atacama Salar, quite near San Pedro Atacama. They have started developing several initiatives in terms of water, heritage, energy, and they have started to negotiate with huge companies located there, Esquem, Codelco. Although they have internal differences, it has been a good way to articulate internal claims and fight for their rights within the Chilean environmental assessment system, for example. The Coast Observatory is an intersectoral platform that seeks to contribute to strengthen the public agenda and decision-making regarding governance and public policy in the Chilean coast. It's a group that involves several academic centers, CIGIDEN is part of the project, foundations that are willing to do conservation projects, some of them are land trust, civil society organizations and local groups through environmental committees that represent people. The crucial thing here is that the observatory has started to change during the last year the way politicians are understanding the coast through policy papers that give evidence but also that have a position that is co-developed with local groups. A Fondart project in Saavedra is the third one. Fondart is an institution of the Chilean state that gives money to cultural projects. 
there is one name, Memories of the Booty Lake, and it's located in rural areas in the south of Chile where Lafkenche communities are located, the Mapuche of the coast. The crucial thing here is that it's this interdisciplinary project that is oriented to raise the status of local knowledge through a participatory process. Leaded by academics of Catholic University of Temuco, they have been working in four rural areas where there is no information of the risks that they have faced since the earthquake and subsequent tsunami of 1960. The municipality is also involved because they need that information, but they don't have enough capacities, technical, and though they have the money to do it. Through local knowledge that this project is providing, they have started to enrich the scientific information that currently have for other areas. These are three ways that we can see how local level representatives in have articulated their knowledge and started to dialogue with other actors at different scales. To sum up, the relevance here is to put scientific and technical knowledge at the service of people, to decolonize knowledge. Think of it. Academics, politicians, entrepreneurs should have an ethical position when thinking of disasters. If the common good is first, we will be safer and better prepared to face the climate emergency. Local groups are the experts now. We have failed. We must follow them. Thank you very much. So this Sydney Ideas event really sheds light on the new normal. A world of accelerating environmental change occurring at a global scale with precipitous alterations in climate systems, land system change, biosphere integrity and biogeochemical flows. These are complex interactions that are taking place between the global and local ecological systems, as well as within local ecosystems as a result of human activity. The latest intergovernmental panel on climate change report, Global Warming to 1.5 Degrees, states that human activities are estimated to have caused approximately one degree of global warming above pre-industrial levels. Global warming is likely to reach 1.5 degrees between 2030 and 2052 if it continues to increase at the current rate. The IPCC states that it has identified that warming greater than the global annual average is being experienced in many land regions and seasons, including two to three times higher in the Arctic. They also state that trends in intensity and frequency of some climate and weather extremes have been detected over time spans during which 0.5 degrees Celsius of global warming has occurred. So this is our new normal, a world of cascading disasters which are more likely to occur. So cascading disasters are where natural disasters occur more frequently and with greater severity, triggering further disasters. We know, for example, that prolonged drought and record temperatures contribute to dry soils and vegetation, which increase the likelihood of fires. So we have these extremes. The barren landscape um, with more vulnerable increase in the likelihood of fires, we've just heard today that there is an increase of firestorms likely in southeastern Australia. This is where we are headed. Barren landscapes in the aftermath of fires are more vulnerable to flooding into mudslides, which is what occurred in California of this year, destroying homes and killing people. 
More than 100 fires are raging in the Arctic. With a mass release of CO2 in June of this year, the equivalent of the last 18 years. These disasters are helping to accelerate global warming. Fires are burning in the United States, in the Amazon in Brazil, in the Arctic in Indonesia and here. Fire chiefs in Australia are stating that the length, extent and intensity of bushfires in Australia is unprecedented. In one of the most fragile, ecologically sensitive states in the world, with an economic dependence on the land, we must ask the question, how can we govern these more frequent and more severe cascading disasters? So there are two issues at stake in seeking to govern these environmental disasters. And the first is that connection between climate science and politics. Scientists tend to only state what the evidence shows. They tend not to go beyond the narrow findings to extra extrapolate on what this means and how it should be addressed. Politicians want the magic bullet they want to know the exact problem and how to solve it. The translation of science to politics is a known problem in global environmental politics. It is even worse when there are significant vested interests in maintaining the status quo. Leaked documents from ExxonMobil last year show that the company's own scientists knew of the link between fossil fuels and global warming since the 1980s. And Shell had come to the same conclusion in its own confidential report, which was only released this year by a Dutch news organisation. For far too long, climate scepticism has been used to mystify and obstruct action on climate change. In a Harvard study, two researchers have traced this disjunction between what these company scientists knew and what the company was telling the public. They trace publicly declared advertisements and documents from 1972 through to 2001 compared to what the scientists were publishing in scientific journals. They found that ExxonMobil systematically misled non-scientific audiences about climate science. So, so scholars identified that the action only comes out of crises, when the full effect of business as usual becomes too real to ignore. So this can occur when the science begins to match people's lived experiences. We simply cannot ignore the ferocity of environmental disasters we are witnessing. This is where we are today. The second impediment to governing environmental disasters is this lack of political will. How can we account for the failure to act on climate change? Well, we can identify this disjunction between science and policy, but we also need to identify how entrenched interests play a significant role in Australia with large natural resources, irrespective of their cumulative impacts that this is now having. Australia has been a laggard in climate policy. But we do move when the rest of the world does. We did sign the International Framework Convention on Climate Change. 
We did sign the 1997 Kyoto Protocol for binding CO2 emissions reductions, and we did fall into line with the 2015 Paris Agreement, detailing that states need to have nationally determined commitments. However, we have seen no real action on addressing climate change since the emissions trading scheme was scrapped in 2014. The coalition government has refused to provide the means for a competitive renewables energy industry, despite the urgency of the climate crisis that is now being acted upon globally. This has resulted in a dramatic take-up of renewable energy. The shift globally is evident by the faster-than-expected drop in the price of renewable technology, investment in renewable technology that now outstrips investment in fossil fuels, the increasing use of renewable energy sources that are being used for electricity generation and installed capacity worldwide, and the increasing penetration of electric vehicles. So this is my call to action. There are things that we can do to help govern environmental disasters. The first is to donate time or money to emergency services, and Australians are very good at doing this. The second is to identify your council's climate adaptation policy. How are you going to be affected and what role can you play? The third is to decarbonise your portfolio. You, as a consumer, can use your financial activism to ensure that insurance agencies, banks and superannuation are deposited with or invested in institutions, but do not invest in fossil fuels. And yes, I realise I'm going against our Prime Minister in stating that. Fourth, you can write to your Member of Parliament demanding action on climate change. The need for concerted action, including adequate funding to address environmental disasters in the short and in the long term including the shift to renewable energy and a transition plan for decarbonisation. And finally, demand our government respect our rights. As Australian citizens to protest, we are still a democracy. Thank you very much for three um, thought-provoking talks. Um, let's get into politics. Um, you've, uh, Linda, you've mentioned about how we have not just the emissions that are counted in our, um, uh, in our inventory of Inaga, we've got the hidden emissions with all the coal, ex all coal that we export. And yet we've just had an election which, according to at least one interpretation of the results of the election, uh, was lost um, in marginal seats in Queensland uh, because, partly at least, because of um, climate change and the Adani. And I'm, I'm, I'm aware that that's not the only interpretation why it happened. Then you look at the, the way Labour has reacted um, to that, seems to be at least the early sign, a bit of debate about whether Labour should continue um, uh, 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 its progressive uh, climate change policy. Somebody looking at, in a hundred years from now, at the political landscape here might find it really a bit surreal in that we've got all those disasters happening and people suffering from them. On the other hand, seems to be politics are going almost as if nothing else is happening and the coal is being exported all the time and our emissions are rising. Now, I know that mining interests are there, but I find that not entirely, um, uh, doesn't entirely explain 
how extreme that contrast is. Do you have any thoughts on this? Why are, are we? Are we? Is there something about Australia um, uh, that is, that that explains that 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 quite extreme contrast? Well, in relation to the election, I mean, you had um, Clive Palmer putting up fifty million dollars with billboards that were slurring the um, head of the opposition. So that must have been a factor. And he's a Queenslander and there are Queensland interests. Um, so there's that going. The other thing is that the current government does not have a transition policy for coal and for coal jobs. Some of the other countries have instituted very quick, like Canada's an example, with some of the um, peat um, what do you call it in the peat sands? Yeah. Um, tar sand. Tar mean, sands. Canada? That's yeah, it yeah. from the yeah, peat. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Um, and in some of the areas there, they've been able to institute very quick transition plans that are very positive for workers. I mean, we have this anomalous situation in Australia where protecting coal jobs at all costs is dinosaur territory. As to why the election was lost. Um, it probably wasn't on climate policy because you've got over 70% of people in surveys saying they are concerned about climate. They, they are joining the dots between climate change and disasters. And now that disasters are more frequent and intense, you speak to most people. Most people know someone, if not affected themselves, they know someone who's been. So as to why it happened, there's the slur campaign, there was the frank dividends issue that probably alienated older voters who could see their investments whittling away. We're in, a, we're in this um, environment of low interest rates, so retirees have been hit. It was probably a dumb thing to do. So it was probably more a vote against Labor than a vote for the coalition. And in terms of surprise, I think some people were very shocked because the positive momentum for recognising climate change is there. Um, but the government is now saying that it was their climate policies, and I don't think that's right. Yeah, I, I agree with Linda. I think uh, it was a very close election, and um, it was definitely lost in a couple of uh, couple of seats in in Queensland that were um, under the influence of Clive Palmer. Um, but I'd also identify that um, that we have uh, a not very open media uh, that uh, that uh, I think as a part of a democratic system that the media should interrogate. The, um, the government of the day, whichever government it is, and, and I think they fail. Uh, I think we have 97% uh, media ownership in this country. It's uh, We have the most concentrated media in the OECD, and that's something that um, this is part of the reason why I talked about the connection between science and policy mm. because we just have outright um, obfuscation about connecting the dots between climate uh, and our future. And, um, and I find that deeply disturbing because uh, the debate has just become so surreal that, um, that you can't even say climate change or global warming 
while we are literally burning to the ground. I mean, that is just bizarre. And so we need to be able to use the traditional functions, the accountability mechanisms of democratic systems, i.e. an open and free media, to be able to interrogate what the government's doing. But of course, you can't say that because people start throwing around these words, fake news. And so where do you get your objective, independent, if information about what's happening in the world. Um, so that is a very, very disturbing trend in this country that I don't think you see in other places. Fake news is definitely everywhere and it's something that we all need to address, but the media ownership does concern me. Let's, um, let's talk about um, disasters um, uh, rather than what's causing them. Mm-hmm. Um, I noticed one interesting thing about Francisco's talk when he uh, described, um, you know, the initiative, the three initiatives, um, um, you know, positive um, um, experiences of dealing with disasters. Um, I noticed, so he mentioned scientists, academics, uh, local politicians, local government, indigenous um, uh, communities. There was an absence of central government in, 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 in that list. And I don't know enough about the um, uh, uh, you know, what's happening in Chile or the conditions in Chile. But I'm interested in the same question in Australia. Um, um, how do we govern disasters at the moment? Um, obviously, we've got quite a complex uh, political system. Uh, we've got states, we've got a federal system with a strong um, uh, 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 power for the state. Um, do we do it well? Um, um, do we, are there things we should be doing differently because the paradigm is changing? As you, as you, as you both said, it's, 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 we. There's very little doubt that we're going to have more frequent um, uh, 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 heat waves, more frequent fires, more frequent um, uh, uh, floods. So, just would like to hear what you think about mm. the current state of the way we deal with disasters. I think quite precariously, yeah. um, in that you have some extremely heroic coordination of effort across the firefighting thing. I had a fire on the boundary of my property in Victoria last year and it was fabulously coordinated. Um, I evacuated for three days. Fortunately, I had somewhere else, was in a rural town, was right in a high tourist area, for example, lots of uh, things to protect there. But It was a very lucky situation. There were 40 fire trucks on day three that all, when the wind changed, opened up their water and quelled the fire. Now, that will not happen very often. It certainly couldn't have happened across New South Wales in the last month because the fire services are stretched. And we have a CFA, the Community Fire um, Force, um, they're volunteers. And there was an interview on radio recently talking to someone and saying, look, it's really hard when you're running your own business because you can be attending a fire now for days. Mm. And so when are we going to get real on having a proper, properly resourced disaster force and that would in like defence come in? Now, defence could be called off at any time and not be available, but they are now complaining too that they're, um, or observing anyway, that their resources are very stretched because um, disaster attendance and assistance post-disaster has turned into dominate their activity. 
and it's probably not necessarily the role of a north-facing defence force with lots of other things to do. The other thing is because the disasters are becoming more frequent and intense, um, we used to, Australia has in the past borrowed helicopters from California and planes that have firefighting capability. Now, because our fire seasons are overlapping, we need to buy our own. And so this is all the focus on how do we gear up for harsher conditions and for a properly resourced um, disaster plan and force. And, and across there will be more um, storms coming at coastal areas. There will be houses falling into the sea. And, you know, you do sea level research yourself. Um, and that will mean that the sea level is rising too because of the warming of the sea alongside the warming of continents. So that's a problem increasingly um, as well as the increased carbon. So a properly resourced policy and governance and um, force in this area is important as we try to adapt. But in the adaptation too, in the literature around um, resilience, one is how do we go back to how we were? And that's problematic. You had people, you know, in fire prone areas wanting to rebuild the same house. So obviously planning and um, building regulations are changing. There's a bell rating system. Those of you in a fire zone will know what this means. And it means that you have to build according to the fire rating of the property. And so we're starting to get more savvy about that in terms of a fire or a flood resilient dwelling. There's a, a house I saw in Brisbane where the architect had all the appliances on the second floor and he knew it was in a flood zone getting worse so the flood could rush through and they'd clean it up but they wouldn't be losing the same amount of equipment. So there's savvy things that can be done, but we need leadership in this area. And you mentioned the NGO sector. I mean, we have a very active and I think vocal and effective NGO sector, but we're suffering the same as NGOs in India and America have, where if you show that you're doing advocacy, you can lose your charitable status. Now, this has to change, yep. like the um, criticism recently of GetUp. And this is the interesting thing about your, your warning yes. about democracy, yep. about the threat to democracy there Absolutely. Is, 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 is put on, yeah. Yes, we have rights. We have mm. the freedom of speech in this country. The idea that this should be something to be locked up for mm. is illiberal. This is not... This is not Australia I know. Uh, I, uh, I find it absolutely stunning that, uh, that Australia would adopt some of the same techniques as authoritarian states. We, mm. we are using the same tactics that Russia is, that we crack down on people that disagree with us. And, uh, and this, this is a frightening place to be. I mean, if we don't stand up for our environment, for our livelihoods, who will? <clears throat> Clive Palmer won't. Yeah. Perhaps the other thing that could be said about this is we've just had in the last 10 years or so more than $2 billion stripped out of higher education funding. 
Now, higher education is the engine of innovative research, as well as um, blue sky thinking. Now, to have that sort of depletion has meant that the system has reacted by then going across to international student recruitment, which is now the third biggest export that Australia has. Well, what is this depletion of $2 billion out of a system on research actually doing to the innovation? And yet we say we're an innovative country. So what's pretty annoying about all of this is what they say and what they do. We're having our capacity undermined and the capacity to innovate is incredibly important. And that's why we we lose Patents, if you want to follow that line, we're losing inventions and patents um, just because we don't have vertically integrated industries. Um, we dig things up and ship them off and then say, isn't that great? But we're not producing the batteries. We're not producing the electric vehicles. And, you know, we have a hydrogen strategy now. And so we need to be talking about these alternative fuels and the alternative research and how we can address um, reduction. And, you know, speaking about the, um, um, to what extent we're prepared uh, for, for the high frequency of disasters and we touched on um, emergency services, which is, you know, the first, our first line of defence. But once you ask those questions, um, certainly in the part of research that I do, um, the questions of how do we change knowing that, uh, uh, knowing that um, the frequency of storms on our coastline um, is going to increase over the next 20, 30, 40 years, it's already increasing. How do we, how do we start thinking differently about our land use? Um, uh, 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 in, in, that's not about emergency. Yeah. That's about making sure that we don't give our children problems that are even thornier than today um, if, if we keep building an area that we know are going to be flooded later. I don't, I, I don't believe we have even started um, dealing with the enormity of that chain mm. that is coming to us. And that's, um, uh, you know, even thinking about emergency, but when you start looking at the broader problem, then it's... Um... Now, I think this is a good time to thank you all for coming tonight. Please join me in thanking uh, Susan and Linda. Um, they, you know, their questions, unfortunately, are going to be with us for a long time. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.